I want you to take your Bible and open to Isaiah chapter 53. And now that you can see the text, you'll be able to do that. Isaiah chapter 53 is the verse we're going to, or Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11 is actually the verse that we are going to uh, be looking at tonight. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. So I want to welcome you all to coming out tonight to our Good Friday service. It is tremendously great to see you here. Last year, if you remember, we couldn't do this. It was all on live stream. And I'm thankful that the Lord has allowed us to meet together in person tonight. Um, when we come to Good Friday, uh, uh, we are looking at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, we're remembering him, uh, who he is, what he's accomplished for us. Um, and, and the verse tonight, uh, verse 11, I think is just tremendous here out of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It, it is a portion of Scripture that directs us to Christ. It, it encourages our heart and helps us to prepare uh, uh, our, our hearts as we come to the Lord's uh, Supper together. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, you might remember, who uh, instituted the Lord's uh, Supper. Uh, it points back to him. He said, when he put that memorial in, he said, do this in remembrance of me. So we come to the Lord's table for that very purpose, to worship him, to remember him, to thank him, to praise him. And it's an opportunity for us to focus all of our attention upon him. Uh, right alongside the preaching of the word, I think, is the, the Lord's Supper and central to the life of the church. It's central in the life of every professing believer. Because when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to meet with Him uh, in, in obedience uh, to His command. So Good Friday is uh, an invitation to come and, and look at the past, but really Good Friday is an invitation to come to salvation. Because every time we stop and partake of the Lord's table and remember it the way that He set it apart for us, every time we do that, every time we remember Him and we take the elements, we proclaim what He has done. We proclaim the, 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 the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. So uh, every time we come to the Lord's table, it's really an opportunity to proclaim the gospel by both word and sight. And again, Christ himself, God in the flesh, coming and giving his body, uh, his blood for us, his life in exchange for ours. So when we think about the agony of the cross and the agony that the Savior suffered uh, on our behalf, rightly, uh, there should be a certain uh, amount of sympathy, a certain amount of sadness. And I do appreciate that we broke up our uh, songs uh, that way uh, to emphasize that, considering the fact that Christ, though sinless, died, and, and he suffers. And he suffers not for himself, but he suffers for us. But again, when we come to Good Friday, again, it's an invitation to salvation. So what we do here should be done with a certain sense of joy, a certain sense of, uh, of gladness, because it's Good Friday. Right? It's Good Friday, and it really is for us who are saved a really good day. And again, we don't worship a dead Savior. You'll not find a crucifix anywhere in this building. The cross behind me is empty. Because we worship a risen Christ, the one who accomplished for us what we could not accomplish on our own, the one who suffered for us and gave himself for us for our redemption, who defeated death on our behalf and rose victoriously from the grave. Amen? It's tremendous truth. Right, so again, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who put this uh, celebration together the night of the last Passover in Matthew uh, 26, verse 26. Uh, um, it says, while they were eating, it was the night when Christ was betrayed, right? The night when they were eating 
Jesus took bread and after blessing, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, said, take ye, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said to them, drink you from, uh, drink from it, all of you. For this is uh, the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of this vine from now until the day that I drink it with you in the Father's kingdom. Verse 30 of that chapter, and after singing a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives, right? So Christ takes the last Passover, turns it into the Lord's Supper, and at that moment, everything from the Old Covenant was set aside. The New Covenant is about to be inaugurated and would come into full fruition at the shedding of His blood. And under the Old Covenant, when the, when the celebration was, uh, the Passover was celebrated, it was done, if you might remember, it was done with bitterness and sadness, bitter herbs, uh, horseradish, right? Uh, but the Lord's Supper is not like that. The Lord's Supper is bread and wine. There's no, there's no sadness at the Lord's Supper. Right? Bread and wine are symbols of joy. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, tremendous, he says this, uh, The memorial of Christ's death is a festival, not a funeral. We come to the table with gladsome hearts, and we go away with it praise. Right? We remember what Christ, done, but we, what Christ has done on our behalf, but we praise him for what he has done on our behalf. Right? So again, it's appropriate. We come to the Lord's table with a certain sense of reverence, obviously, but it's appropriate for us to come here and leave with glad hearts, singing praises to our God, because that's exactly what Christ did when he led his disciples in the first, uh, um, the first Lord's Supper, right? He changed the Passover to the Lord's Supper, and he concluded by singing hymns. Uh, some of the uh, scholars would think that, uh, have suggested he, they sang the hymns out of uh, 113 to 118. Those are the halals, uh, songs of praise. Some have suggested perhaps 136, Psalm 136, which says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His loving kindness is everlasting to him who alone does great wonders for his loving kindness is everlasting. I think the psalmist is trying to repeat a theme, right? The steadfast love of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. It is for us to sing praises to him. Now, this last week I found a, a, um, an old hymn out of a Presbyterian hymnal, and it didn't even have a name to it, but it's number 143 if you wanted to look it up if you had one. And it goes like this. It says, it is finished. Shall we, raise, shall we raise songs of sorrow or praise, mourn to see the Savior die, or proclaim his victory? If of Calvary we tell, how can songs of triumph swell? If of man redeemed from woe, how shall notes of mourning flow? Ours the guilt which pierced his side, ours the sins for which he died. But the blood which flowed that day washed our sin and guilt away. Lamb of God, thy death hath given pardon, peace, and hope of heaven. It is finished. Let us raise songs of thankfulness and praise. Amen? It's a time of rejoicing. So I want us to consider this uh, psalm and this verse 11 here very, very briefly. Again, Psalm, or, or Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Again, it says, as the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now, obviously, Isaiah is one of the great texts of the Old Testament, written 700 years or so before the birth of Christ. But nevertheless, it speaks very directly to the the person of Christ. Some people have uh, described the book of Isaiah as a miniature Bible. The first 39 chapters, uh, are like the Old Testament, are filled with God's judgment on an immoral and idolatrous people. Because of sin, judgment is going to come. Because God is holy, God is righteous, he can't allow sin to go unpunished. The second portion of the book of Isaiah, 27 chapters, just like the New Testament, declares a message of hope. 
a message that the Messiah is coming, the fact that he is the Savior, the fact that he is going to be the one who will bear the iniquities of his people. In fact, the very name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation, which is probably a good summary of the entire book. So the first 35 chapters of the book are filled with prophecies of uh, condemnation, people who are neglecting God, people who are rejecting God. And and again, it's a message that's contemporary, a message that uh, we would in our time do well to pay attention to. Now we're going to work our way back up there. If you want, you can just sit and listen, or if you've got the lights on now and you can see, you want to go back to chapter one, I'm just going to run through a few verses and I'm going to go through pretty quick. If you can't keep up with me, just sit and listen, okay? But Isaiah chapter one, verse uh, four. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Tremendous. Alas, O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, son who acts corruptly. Uh, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned from Him. We are in a whole lot of trouble, right? God knows exactly who we are. A sinful nation weighed down with iniquity. Yet amazingly, God is going to graciously provide His people an opportunity to repent, to return to Him. Look at verse 18 to return to him as their only hope, to avoid the coming of judgment. Isaiah 1 and 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go over to chapter 3. God's promise to bring judgment. Right, Chapter 3, verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. Verse 9, they display their sin like Sodom. They don't even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly with them, for what he deserves it uh, will be done to him. Over in chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Verse 24, so their root will become like rot and their blossoms blow away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. When a people, listen, when a people reject the word of God, when a people reject the word of God, When they despise God's word, as a nation, they are done. They are finished. They're being ready for the slaughter that's to come. And again, that's another truth that people in this country would do well to remember. Verse 25 of that chapter, On account of this, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. God is going to judge those who oppose him. God is going to um, bring judgment against those who rebel against his glorious presence and against his word. Moving on rather rapidly, don't turn there yet, but Isaiah chapter 36 through 39, that's kind of a parenthetical uh, uh, portion of scripture, a, a historical parenthesis concerning Assyria and Babylon, those invasions which is the means that God used uh, in part to bring judgment upon the rebelling nation of Israel. Chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40. Comes a a change. 39 chapters, judgment. Here's a change. 
So after the pronouncement of judgment, Isaiah foretells of, of God's promise of hope and, and restoration. And again, it's based on God. It's based on his kindness, his majestic power. Uh, chapter 40, verse 1 st- starts out with these words. 39 chapters of condemnation. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. That's amazing. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert a highway of our, for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Although Israel has sinned, there's a day of redemption coming because of God's mercy, because of God's kindness, a day of glorious uh, day of forgiveness. Look at verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Don't fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here's your God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Isaiah said, look, comfort's coming, not because it's deserved, but it's coming because of God's character, God's gracious character, God's merciful character. Look at Isaiah chapter 41, verse 14. Verse 14. Do not fear me, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I'll help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Verse 16. You will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 42. He says that he's going to send his servant. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not carry, uh, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Uh, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So God says, look, in spite of sin and rebellion, salvation is coming. It's anticipated uh, because God is again merciful. God is again gracious. Uh, God desires to send a servant, according to verse uh, 7, uh, who's going to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in the darkness from prisons. God's going to send a redeemer to his people. And he's going to do it through the Holy One of Israel. He's going to do it through the suffering servant of Jehovah. Someone has rightly pointed out that God's greatest display of his power, stop and think about this, God's greatest display of his power is his ability to redeem his people. It's the greatest display of his power. His ability to return love and forgiveness for hatred and injustice. The greatest display of God's power is not in his ability to crush his opposition. That's what he will do and that's what he can do. But the God's greatest demonstration of his power is found in his ability to forgive sin, yet not violate his holiness or his justice. It's amazing. There really is no one like him. A pardoning God who forgives sins, right? There's no one is equal. He is the creator, the redeemer, the justifier, the one who is infinitely holy, the merciful, the loving, the compassionate God. Over in chapter 53, that's where God through Isaiah begins to 
uh, extol this servant. Verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. When this servant of Jehovah comes, he's going to prosper. He's going to fulfill and purposely do all that God has called him to do. And he's going to be great. He's going to be high and lifted up, the prophet says. He's going to be greatly exalted. He's going to be greatly exalted to a place where he's co-equal with God. God the Father who sent him. Because this servant, of course, is no mere human being. He's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the prophet goes on and says that the servant of Yahweh, or the servant of Jehovah, he's going to suffer, he's going to be humiliated, probably describing the events that surrounded the crucifixion. The prophet says that he's going to appear weak and unattractive to people, yet he will sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? It means when he comes, he's going to have a worldwide effect. To sprinkle many nations speaks of the uh, performance of the high priest. So he's going to come in his high priestly function and he's going to cleanse the world of its sin. And he's going to shock the world when he shows up. The text says the kings are going to be speechless. The kings are going to shut their mouths on account of him. Maybe because of amazement just standing before him. Maybe because of the amazement of standing before uh, God's servant and his humiliation. Perhaps their uh, ability to not say anything is because they can't justify themselves before this holy God when he shows up in their presence. So there's good news, right? That God is gracious towards men. He sends his son, the Savior, uh, to stand uh, as the marvelous uh, uh, intermediary. The great good news that any man or woman could ever hear that God does a pardoning God, although we're sinful and deserve condemnation, God desires to save sinners. And those who reject his mercy are going to face God's wrath. Now the sad point is that that wonderful good news is not heard by everybody. It may be heard by everybody or a lot of people, but they don't receive it. Again, look just at verse uh, 1 out of fifty-three, chapter 53. The prophet asked, who has believed our message and who to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? Who's believed the message? It's a rhetorical question. Again, the prophet's using that question to draw the fact that many hear the gospel, but there are few who truly believe it. Many hear the gospel, but few who truly believe it. And obviously, history proves that out, the history of the nation of Israel for certain. Right? Israel rejected the word of God concerning the Messiah. And when the Messiah showed up in their very presence, they couldn't even see him, right? We've been talking about that in the morning in, the, in <clears throat> our study in the book of John. Uh, he, he walked face to face, toe to toe with the religious leaders of Israel and the people of Israel knew him not. And nothing's changed, right? Nothing's changed in this world. It's the same thing today. Many people, both Jew and Gentile alike, refuse to believe the message of the gospel of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me tell you what, all men should. And the text before us here in verse 11 points that out. Right? This text is the gospel. This is the good news that, again, God desires to save men. This last week in my preparation, I, I like to read, obviously, and I like to read a lot of things. And I always like to, if I can, if I'm going to preach, uh, especially out of the Old Testament, I like to see what Spurgeon says uh, of this if he has a, a, a sermon and he actually does he preached on january uh, 1872 
uh, he entitled the text, uh, or he entitled the sermon, Our Magnificent uh, Savior. And as we work our way through the sermon tonight, I'm going to give you just a little bit of insight from him, uh, because uh, you need to hear him. Uh, you know, you need to hear the, those words restated, because it's tremendously helpful and encouraging. Now let's really dive into the text here, right? Let's just begin the exposition. Uh, verse uh, 11 Note first, there's two people, two people in the text, the Lord Jesus Christ and the many. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Now, as we work our way through the text, we're going to look at the character of both of both parties in the text, the Lord Jesus Christ and then the character of the many. And there's three things that are immediately come to the surface made uh, reference to the character of Christ. Number one, he's God's servant, right? My righteous servant. Number two, he's the sin bearer. For he shall bear their iniquities, right? And number three, he's the justifier. He's the one who will justify the many. So let's look here at the fact that Christ is the servant, right? Christ the servant. Now stop and think about the fact of who Jesus Christ really is, right? He's the Lord of heaven. God overall, the blessed God forever, who comes uh, uh, and he makes himself a servant. Excuse me, amazingly, uh, Paul speaks of him in uh, Philippians 2 and 8. He says, being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The high king of heaven stepped into the time. The high kingdom of heaven put on our humanity. We have no concept of how much of a humiliation that is for God to come and put on our flesh because we think way too much of ourselves. The high king of heaven came and put on our flesh. He humbled himself. He was obedient to the Father's command, to the Father's will, even to the point of death. <clears throat> Again, when he was here in the flesh, he stooped, right? He stooped down to wash the dirty feet of the disciples, something that they refused to do for each other. When he was here in the flesh, he was always obedient to the Father. And we are disobedient to the Father always. When he was here in the flesh, he lived a perfect life. He perfectly obeyed the Father's will always, and we never do. The text says, again, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will justify the many. The word anguish means labor, trouble, toil. He will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. So, as the servant of God, to be the sin-bearer, the one who's going to come and justify the many... In obedience, Christ suffered to the very depths of his soul. We often think about the physical suffering of Christ, which is excruciating. That's where we get that word from, from the cross, right? From the horrible physical toil of the cross. But many, I'm not trying to make light of it, but many men suffered crucifixion. He suffered to the anguish of his soul. The servant of God, the sin bearer, the one who justifies the many in obedience, it costs Christ to the very depths of his soul, not just physically. He suffers to the very depths of his being. How's that? We'll stop and think about who's Christ. He's the absolute holy one, right? He is the one who knew no sin in life, in eternity, right? He's the one who knew no sin whatsoever. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 describes him as the holy, innocent, undefiled one, the one who's separated from sinners. He's the one who, when the rulers of the world uh, uh, interviewed him right there at his trial, they could find no offense in him. 
Paul says, I, I, I find no guilt in this man. Yet he is the one who, is a, as God's righteous servant, God himself says he will make him who knew no sin, sin. To be sin on our behalf, that he might, we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Christ, as God's righteous servant, although sinless, in obedience to the Father, takes on a relationship to sin that he never knew before. Causing him to suffer the anguish that he suffered in his spirit. He again is sinless. Don't you listen to those liars who tell you that Christ became sin on Calvary's cross because he didn't. He didn't suffer and die for his sin. He's still sinless. But he took on a relationship to sin close enough where he could bear our iniquity. And he suffered to the anguish of his soul. That leads us to the second characteristic of Christ. The fact that he is indeed the sin bearer. He shall bear their iniquity. Now again, stop and think about the fact. It's an amazing fact. It should never become old. It should never become commonplace in our thinking or in our minds. It should always remain the wonder of wonders that again, God himself became a man. God himself became a man. God himself again put on our humanity. God himself came for the express purpose to bear the sins of his people. The theologians call it the doctrine of substitution. And the doctrine of substitution is the main or chief doctrine of revelation that God himself stands in the place of the sinner. And you see it over and over in the Bible. And most certainly you see it here in the 53rd chapter. Look back up at verse 4. Note the words. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely... Our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being or for our peace fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So there's Christ standing in our place. There's Christ bearing the sins of many, as the text says. And and look there at verse 6. Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the Lord caused the penalty or the punishment of our iniquity to fall on him. Verse 6 says the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Again, I think adding to his agony and soul. He caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. The sinless Christ. He comes and the sinless Christ bears upon his shoulder not just the guilt of our sin, but God's wrath against our sin. God's wrath against our sin that we so richly deserve. Again, the doctrine of substitution. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, not by our own efforts, but in him. 1 Peter 3 and 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. It's the only way you're going there, friends. It's the only way you're getting there. It's only by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God laid upon Christ all of our iniquity. And again, not just metaphorically, but literally. Right? Literally, God treated the dear Lord Jesus Christ as if he had committed every sin that ever committed by every person who would ever believe. He who knew no sin, who was sinless, perfectly innocent, without any sin, 
yet God poured out his holy wrath upon him instead of us. God punished him instead of us. God punished him for our sin. Suffered to the anguish of his soul. Look at verse 10. But the Lord is pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a gift, guilt offering. The Lord is pleased to do this. Well, who, who killed Jesus? Well, the Romans? Well, no, not really. I mean, they were intermediate agents, but they, didn't, they weren't the ones who killed him. What about the Jews, right? Jews turned him in. The Jews made all kinds of accusations against him. Did they kill him? Well, again, not really. Who killed Christ? The answer is God did. Why? Who is he? He's God's lamb. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw him in chapter 1? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus is God's lamb. Jesus is the only one who can do this. God the Father picked Jesus, his son, so that Jesus could be the lamb, the guilt offering, the sin bearer. Again, look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Well, when did he do that? Well, in a certain sense, He bore our iniquities in eternity past, right? Because isn't Jesus Christ the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world? That's true. In a certain sense, when did he do this? In another sense, he he bore our iniquity all through his life. Again, verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. All through his life, Christ was abused. All through his life, he was scorned, mistreated. All because he came into the world to offer himself out of love to be the sacrifice for sin. His entire life, he was abused, mistreated. He went before both Pilate and Herod. He was interrogated. Verse 7, Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. As for this, his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people whom the stroke was due. Verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. And of course, the place that he primarily bore the sins of the many, our sins, of course, is when he suffered on the cross. Verse 10 again, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see the offspring, or see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hands. Christ did that very thing. He became the sin offering. Uh, he, he went to Calvary's cross to be our sin bearer for the transgression of my people whom the stroke was due. He suffered. He said it is finished. He gave up his spirit and he died. And because Christ did that as our substitute, listen, the sins of his people can never be found. Because Christ has stood in our place. Christ has paid our penalty. The sins of God's people who believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his substitutionary work Their sins can't be found. They're gone. The debt has been paid for. 
Now Spurgeon in his sermon asks a really good question. He asks why? Why would God do this to his son? Why would he cause him to suffer so much? Why would God be pleased to save us from our sins by laying our sins on his own dear son, making him to suffer for us, for our sins? Right? Why would he use such a method? And Spurgeon gives four points, fourfold answer. Spurgeon, number one, he says, he satisfied his own justice. Again, this is Spurgeon. If we had lain in hell forever, yet divine justice would not have been fully justified for after a thousand years of suffering, there would remain still an eternity of debt due to God's justice, and the debt would not be paid. Let me say, if God had annihilated all sinners that ever lived at one, at, uh, at one stroke, he would not have so honored his justice as he did when he took sin and laid it upon his son, and his son bore divine wrath, which was due to that sin. For now there has been a render, uh, rendered unto divine justice a full equivalent, a complete recompense for all the dishonor which it suffered. And I know no, of no other conceivable way by which such a recompense could have been rendered. He suffered that we should have suffered. He suffered that we should have suffered, and now God's law stands in its all, all in its integrity. It was not dismissed, or the penalty has not been dismissed. The penalty has been executed. The sword is awakened against the shepherd, although the stroke was due the flock. God satisfies his justice in Christ, and Christ takes that spot. He, the shepherd, takes the stroke that's due us. It's an amazing truth. Secondly, Spurgeon says, why would God treat his son such? He said, moreover, God in choosing Christ to suffer in our stead has been pleased to lay help upon that one that is mighty, upon the one that is mighty to save. He says, oh, my soul, delight in the thought that Christ was my substitute. If I'd been told that an angel had done his best to save me, I should feel unsafe. If I'd been told that all the holy men and all the world had striven to save me, I should have felt insecure. But if the very Christ of God himself, the eternal one, has deigned to bear my iniquities, why should I fear? The mighty Savior, the almighty Savior, can surely put away my sins. There is help laid upon one that is mighty. Isn't that encouraging? The mighty one has stepped into time, right? He's our substitute. We don't have anything to fear. Our perfect substitute, our perfect Savior. Listen, if you are safe in Christ, if you've repented and placed your faith in Christ, there's not a thing that you can do to lose your salvation because Christ has bore your sin. Your guilt has been removed. Christ, the mighty one who is saved, right? He has come and acted on our behalf. Number three, he says the Lord has laid upon our sins upon Christ because it was Christ's desire to do so. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, Christ longed to come in that body and bear the sins of his people, and in that body proved that he had a love for them by which many waters could not quench and floods could not drown. For down into the depths he would go with his beloved church and never come up again until he could bring her up with him as he has done to the praise of the glory of his grace. Therefore, you see God is honored, his grace is honored, and we ourselves are comforted by having a mighty Savior and Christ's own longings are content by having sin laid upon him. He came out of love. It was his desire to do that. Right out of his great love for mankind, he came. God the Father, out of his great love for mankind, uh, sent his Son, and the Son, out of his great love for mankind, came. The Father was pleased to crush him if he would offer himself as a sacrifice for the sin of the world, and that's exactly what Christ did. It is tremendous truth. Tremendous truth. 
Number four, moreover, beloved, the forgiveness of sin through the laying on, uh, through the forgiveness of sin through laying it upon Christ made a show to all mankind and to all other created intelligence the tremendous evil of sin. You remember, we're not the only people in the universe, right? There's other personages. There are angelic beings that are watching divine, the plan of redemption being played out. And there's a statement being made to them. And this one is the tremendous evil of sin. Spurgeon, here was a people whom God desired to save, but he could not. His justice did, as it were, tie the hands of his mercy. Sin was so hateful to him that he could not blot it out and forget it. He must punish it. And I know not of any way by which he could have shown his abhorrence of sin so greatly as when he bruised his own son. A man may show indignation about a crime in many ways, but surely in none so much as when he sees that crime upon his son. And he says, no, I cannot reveal my love to you while that crime is upon you. You must suffer for it. And because sin was laid upon him, the father would not smile, causing Jesus to cry out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Spurgeon. A greater Abraham unsheathed his knife to slay a greater Isaac, and no angel intervened. The Savior died to death. Jesus, all for our sake, the blessed Lord, bore the wrath of God, that God might show that sin, even when laid upon his son by imputation, was so horrible to him that he would not let him escape. He must be bruised. It pleased the Father to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. Spurgeon concludes by saying this, Do you not think, beloved, that God chose this way of pardoning sin to show how great love, as well as great his abhorrence of sin? Behold how he loves us. What manner of love is this that God has shown to us, that when we were yet enemies, he gave his son to die for us? There's one sweet reason that Jesus gives why he died. You remember that he loved his church and gave himself up for her, that he might present to himself without sprout or wrinkle any such thing. And there's no washing for his church like the washing of his blood. Even if you believers should wash your face in your tears, you would stain your face in washing. But washed in the blood of Jesus, there remains no trace or speck of sin. Now that Christ has cleansed her, the blood-washed church is pure, and no folly is charged to her. Her righteousness is the righteousness of her Creator. Her purity is the holiness of God Himself. Amen? Isn't that good? No charge. The blood-washed church, pure. Righteousness that we have is the righteousness of our Creator. The purity we have is the holiness of God Himself who stood in our place. Why did Christ come and suffer to die? To satisfy God's justice. Because Christ alone is the mighty one to save. He came out of love, out of Christ's love, because it was Christ's desire for himself to stand in our place. And he came and suffered that death so God could declare the tremendous evil of sin. The third title. Christ, he's God's servant, my righteous servant. He is the sin bearer. Thirdly, he's the justifier. Again, the text says, he will justify the many. And again, it's Christ alone that makes a man just. It's Christ alone that has a righteousness that he gives away that we cannot earn, that we cannot work for. A righteousness that we need so that we can stand before God. 
And again, it's a righteousness that comes to us from God, not by our own efforts, but only by the perfect righteousness of the perfect person, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. And God imputes to Christ our sin. And then in the great exchange, God imputes to us Christ's perfect righteousness. That's the substitution. The just for the unjust. Again, he makes him who knows no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of your hope, my friend, is in Christ. He's our hope. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Our, uh, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. Verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet in his a rich man was with, with a rich man in his death, but he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. All right, Christ comes. He blots out sin. The innocent one, innocent one, one, the one who's done no violence. Again, he gives his life for the guilty. He makes us absolutely perfect, positively righteous, just, able to stand before the Holy Father's sight in his presence the very moment that you repent and believe and trust Christ. It's tremendous. The threefold character, the capacity of Christ, the servant, the sin bearer, the justifier. As a result of the anguish of his soul, we'll see it be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my my servant will justify the many as he bears their iniquity. What about the other side of the equation? The many. And I'll move quickly. Three aspects here also. Those who need justification, those who need to receive the knowledge of the truth, and then those who are justified. Again, we come into the world and we're all aliens, strangers, sinners before God. We're all guilty before God because of our sin. We're all unjust. We all are in need of reconciliation. We're all in need of justification. Look at verse 6 again. It says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has crushed or caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Right? So God says, look, I'm going to take all those who are guilty. I'm going to lay that man's sin upon Christ, the perfect one, and I'm going to punish Christ for that guilty man. Again, Christ our substitute. Christ takes the punishment in our place, and we who are guilty are set free. We're set free because of Christ, by the imputed righteousness of Christ. The Lord has laid the iniquity of Christ upon all of our iniquity upon Christ. Again, we come into the world guilty. John 3 and 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has, has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I don't know where you're at with the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. I'm glad you came. I don't know if you're saved. You may have come into the room because it's the religious thing to do on a Good Friday. A lot of people are religious and people come to Good Friday services because somehow they think that gains some kind of a, a, a good favor with God. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're already judged. We're already guilty. Every man and woman comes into this world with a debt that needs to be paid that they can't pay on their own and only a substitute can do that for them. So maybe God in his providence and his kindness has led you here either physically or by way of the internet to listen to the message of salvation that you desperately need to hear. It's not about you. It's all about Christ. We're not talking about you. We're not talking about me. Christ came into the world because we're guilty. Christ came into the world because we're hell-bound sinners. You say, I don't believe that. That just shows the... The fact that you're lost and you don't understand who you are before a holy God. 
I'm not as bad as my neighbor. We're not talking about your neighbor, my friend. We're talking about you. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Christ came into the world to justify the ungodly. The Redeemer came and died for those who have no righteousness of their own. We sang songs out of this portion of Scripture, Romans 5 and 6. While we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. There's a wrath coming. But for those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ, he saves us from that wrath. Who are the many? Those who need justified. Who are the ones who need justified? Every man, woman, who takes a breath in God's universe, who steps into time. The second category of the many are those who need the knowledge. They need to receive a knowledge of the truth. Again, the text says, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, or he will bear their iniquities. I think you could render it like this. It might be more helpful. By the knowledge of him, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. By the knowledge of him. So again, what does a sinner need to obtain justification? He needs a personal knowledge of the righteous one. He needs to know the fact that he's a sinner, that, that he can do nothing to save himself, that he's in a desperate situation before a holy God, and it's only the righteous one, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, can help him. In other words, the sinner is in a desperate need of justification. That sinner needs to know or believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by the knowledge of him. By the knowledge of him, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Right? Sinners need to know him. Right? They need to know the righteous one. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Where do you obtain that knowledge? Where do you obtain the knowledge of the righteous one? You're not finding it on the golf course. You're not finding that knowledge walking in a forest, looking at the trees and going, oh, I'm communing with God. No, you're not. You're on the golf course or you're walking in the forest, communing with the trees, right? You find the knowledge of the Holy One, the righteous one, you find it in God's Word. That's where he displays himself. The fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes upon him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. Right? There, there's there's uh, salvation not by effort. Salvation is not by works. It's by believing in him, the righteous one. Men are saved by him and only by him. By faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get this knowledge of the truth, this knowledge of the righteous one, through the Bible. Therefore, we who understand the Bible, we preach Christ. Amen? We preach Christ, we preach him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God, God, uh, the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. Indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, the stumbling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ and him crucified. That's mankind's only hope. Person of Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon asked the question, well, how, how is Christ known? To the ones whom he justifies. He says this. 
They know him as God's servant. They know him as a bearing their iniquities. He says, some persons think that the great deal of Christ is in his glory and Christ in his second advent. God forbid that I should have you forget those characters or any other. But the soul-saving aspect of Christ is not his glory nor his second advent, but Christ the servant, Christ the sin-bearer. Because it was Christ who said, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. It was Christ who said, if I be lifted up, not on a throne, but on the cross. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Spurgeon says, you have many sins upon you, but you can never get them off by doing anything on your own. No obedience, no tears, anything else that you can do, or make one spot of sin stir an inch. You are black as night, black as hell, and you cannot make yourself white. But here it is, he says, if you'll know Jesus. If you'll hear Jesus. If you'll believe upon Jesus. Believe what he teaches. Believe who he is. Believe that he's God's sent servant. That he is the propitiation for sin. That he is the sin bearer. And that if you trust him with your sin and with your soul, you will be saved. And not a spot of sin remains upon you. At the moment you're saved, he'll justify you. Make you just. It's an instantaneous work. He says a man may have been a condemned sinner five minutes ago, but the moment that he knows Christ and is justified He is justified in his soul by that very knowledge, by faith, by simple dependence upon Christ. We learn to know that man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that man who knows Christ, he says, goes away rejoicing. Isn't that good? That's tremendous. Right? The last one. Those who need to be justified, those who need to hear him or need to receive the knowledge of him and then the justified. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by the knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will justify the many. He'll bear their iniquities. We talk about this a lot in the evenings because we're going through the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. But to be justified, again, means to be declared by the supreme, ultimate judge of the universe, not guilty and positively righteous because of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're all sinners. We're all guilty. It's only through this one dying Savior, the one who defeated death, that we can come before God the Father and be declared not guilty, positively righteous, and just. No longer held accountable for our sin. Again, God not only made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 4 and 25 says, he was delivered up because of our transgression and raised because of our justification. Christ stood in our place. He bore the penalty. God raised him from the dead because he's no, he has no sin. Right? He stood the penalty for us. God raised him because he has no condemnation himself. He paid the penalty, our penalty, in full. Now he stands, uh, sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us always. All we do in this equation is bring sin. All he does is save. It's by believing upon the dying Savior who takes our sin by coming and confessing our need of a Redeemer that we're justified. We deserve to be damned. We deserve to go to hell. But because Christ defeated death, we who are one with him, we who believe upon him, we're raised to new life. Because Christ paid the penalty in full. And God the Father accepted his sacrifice in full, and he proved that by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? Tremendous.
And having justification because of the Savior, that's why Paul says, there's no, there's now therefore what? Romans 8.1. There's now therefore no, I can't hear you. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect if God is the one who justifies and the answer is no one. No one. Because all of our sins have been paid for in Christ. Listen, again, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's absolutely now no count of sin against you in Christ. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, here in the building or here on the internet, you need to fall before the Lord and repent. Why would you turn away such a greatest salvation like this? Final thought. Spurgeon, God said this, I have forgiven you and blotted out your sin, therefore the believer cannot be accused, he can't be condemned, consequently he can't be punished. What shall he be punished for, he asks. Someone says, for his sins. He says he doesn't have any. (laughs) Because they're all laid on Christ. The believer doesn't have any sins. They're all laid on Christ. He shall bear their iniquities. Spurgeon asked, can sin be in two places at once? If my sins are on Christ, they can't be on me. If God has laid the weight of my guilt on Christ and Christ bore it and made an end of it, then I'm clear of it as though I never sinned. Glory be to God for such a gospel that the soul condemned and lost by nature should be made completely clean through the purging of the great atoning sacrifice of our dear Lord and Master. For Mark you says there's more than that. For when Christ justifies a man, he not only blots out his sin, but he is a just man. And that man is treated henceforth as if he were just. Now the just shall be rewarded. The just shall have the favor of God. The just shall enter heaven. And so shall you, poor guilty sinner, if you trust Christ. That righteousness of Christ becomes yours. As a result of the anguish of his soul, right? He will see it, be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many. He'll bear their iniquities. What tremendous truth. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for that truth. We're thankful for the great power of the gospel, the great power and the redemptive work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that Good Friday for us who have repented and received of that great kindness that you poured out in Christ. Today is not a funeral. Today is a day of rejoicing. And we rejoice. And we're going to do that as we bow before you as we come to the Lord's table. And by way of symbol, remember exactly what you did and declare again the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.